Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. Hello, welcome to the Saturday Brunch show with me, Emma Williams. And despite the sunshine, I'm feeling a little melancholy today as I'm exploring why it is that we seem to struggle to hold on to our best and brightest in the teaching profession. It's Saturday, we're live, and it's time for some very frank discussion. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and thank you for joining me on this sunny morning. So today I'm going to be building on something that I discussed in my show two weeks ago with my guest Harry Hudson and he was the co-author of a book about the image of teaching and we explored all sorts of themes around that Uh, but part of one of the things that they examine in the book is how the profession is viewed in terms of workload and how it is viewed as a vocation. And he and his co-author are quite critical of that concept. They're very careful to say that they understand a lot of teachers feel it is a vocation and that's fine. But let me explain what I mean. So there's been quite a bit of discussion. I would go far as to say beef about this on Edu Twitter just this week. Now I hear you cry, what? Beef on Edu Twitter? cannot possibly be so. But yes, sports fans, it has been going on. So a few people have been discussing discussing exactly this topic. So Dan Wawori, um, sorry if that's the wrong pronunciation, not quite sure how you say his surname. He shared a meme, one of those, you know, little inspiring little pictures that has a quotation on that we're all supposed to find moving. And he wasn't happy about it. So the meme says, A good teacher is like a candle. It consumes itself to light the way for others. I mean, eh. firstly, nauseating, but secondly, as Dan says, yet another example of fetishizing teachers' sacrifice. What if instead we supported teachers deliberately and systemically, uplifted their well-being as key to student success? Teachers consuming themselves is not a healthy or a sustainable model. Just stop. Hashtag edu Twitter. Now he's absolutely right. And the more of these revolting memes I see, the more irritated I become. I don't think it's necessarily a fair portrayal of the profession, which is what Harry and his co-author look at in their book. But also, frankly, if this really is the case, if this is what we are asking teachers to do, then no wonder we have a problem with recruitment and retention. And it's that that I'm going to be exploring today. So lots of teachers responded to uh, his tweet, uh, sharing similar memes, uh, which are equally appalling. Here's one. Teachers don't teach for the income. They teach for the outcome. Yeah, beautiful. All sorts of nauseating stuff. It's 
It's so unhelpful. And linked to this, further discussion was started by Daniel Bundred, who I know has been a guest on Teachers Talk Radio, I think on Tabitha's show. He comments, when we say teaching is a vocation, an act of love, or you need to be a certain kind of person to teach, let's treat those sentiments for what they are, professional purity tests. They drive bright, capable people out of the profession and dissuade others from entering. Toxic. Now, this really resonated with me because I had at the time, not long, had the conversation uh, with um, Rhiannon, which I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. And this is exactly the kind of thing that she was talking about. She's questioning whether she is the right kind of person to do the job. And that really got me thinking, are there are there other jobs where people feel like this, where somehow we're expected to be a certain kind of person? So there were a huge number of responses to uh, Daniel's tweet. And what's interesting is that it really upset some people in the profession, really upset them. I found that really interesting. So somehow implying that teaching isn't, or at least doesn't have to be a vocation, that it's a profession and it's a job. And yes, frankly, we do it for the salary. I mean, how many people would be getting up at quarter to six in the morning in November if they weren't getting paid for it? I think that's true of any job. So people got really angry with him, or at least some people did. Others completely agreed. Along the same vein and uh, in within the same week, we had Sam Strickland, who is a head teacher. I only know him from Twitter, but I know that's his role. He said, it saddens me that our profession continues to be slammed as lazy despite the continued COVID challenges and our collective hard work. So many colleagues are close to burnout and fatigued and exhausted. More has to be done to retain and recruit teachers. Well, yes, Sam, it does. But you know what? If if the portrayal of the profession is that we're all in burnout and we're all exhausted, I'm afraid that isn't going to cut the mustard. Who wants to join a profession like that? So do we have a problem? Do we have a problem with workload? Do we have a problem with burnout? Or is it just certain schools? Now, before I focus more on retention, which is what's most relevant uh, for my discussion with Rhiannon, I saw just this morning, Neil Armand shared a tweet. Can we talk about how wild some of the processes at interview are at the primary level? Definitely not how to draw candidates into the profession. What's the wildest thing you've been asked to do as part of the interview process? Now, I'll get on to some of the amazing responses in a moment. Uh, but with his tweet, he shared a snippet, which is clearly from uh, something sent to a candidate for a job in a primary school. It says, uh, first task will be welcome, opportunity to meet the interview panel and learn more. Well, OK, fine, great. Interview and learning conversation with CEO and head teachers from the trust. Scary, but fine. Photos. 
Please bring a maximum of six photographs from your experience in school that illustrates effective teaching and learning. What? This is an opportunity to discuss teaching and learning and demonstrate your knowledge and understanding of current pedagogy. Okay. Task. Please bring an image, object or artefact of your choosing to inspire writing with a group of approximately six year one pupils. This activity should last no longer than 30 minutes. I mean, so this is what interview show and tell. And when you're going to be doing creative writing with a group of six, I mean, if only. Uh, yeah, so that's the interview process in one primary school. And the replies to this of the sorts of things that people have been asked to do at interview, I'm quite frankly surprised that anybody ever made it past that stage. Uh, Shannon Doherty says, I once had a head teacher hand me a deck of cards with personality traits on them. He asked me to go through them very quickly and pick out three that are important to being a teacher. As I was going through the deck, she adds, he told me I wasn't going fast enough and banged on the table. I mean, what a nutcase. So again, it's that concept that you have to be some kind of special individual to be a teacher, that there is something uh, peculiar, something um, unique, and that you, needs to be a part of your personality for you to actually cope in the job. And again, it's going back to what Daniel called the purity test. It's bizarre um, and slightly alarming. So it seems that we do have some very peculiar recruitment methods used by various schools and definitely without question, a current problem with retention. There's no question that there is something going on. But let's come back to this idea that teaching is a vocation and the fact that it seems to upset so many teachers to suggest that it is not. So certainly, um, Miss Smith, who's quite a well known account on, on Twitter, really didn't like it. And she then sparked a whole discussion about why you became a teacher. And that became quite a big debate on Twitter with lots of people chipping in. Um, now, for me personally, it was something of an accident, like it, like it is for so many people. I stayed far too long in academia got halfway through a PhD I realised I hated uh, and had a crisis of, well, what the hell am I going to do? Here I am teetering on the edge of being ridiculously overqualified in a subject that isn't particularly vocational, to use the word. Uh, what the hell am I going to do? And it occurred to me that the one thing that was keeping me sane, borderline, during my PhD was the teaching I was doing, like most uh, uh, PhD candidates. I was teaching undergraduates uh, for some of my time to earn a pittance uh, of, of uh, a salary. And I really enjoyed it. And I did seem to be quite good at it in a way that some of the what I would call proper academics, uh, which I never really counted myself as, were not. They weren't very good, particularly, for example, with the beginner's Latin course, which Royal Holloway ran for students who study uh, classical studies. 
So they would start Latin ab initio, and they had, this is no longer the case, I believe, but they had to pass a first year, one year course in Latin to qualify, um, just as a sort of token that at least you've had a bit of a stab at the language spoken by the Romans. And I ended up discovering that I was so good with teaching the ab initio Latin that I actually ended up teaching a class of second years who were resitting. And I got most of them through. So I realised it was something that I was good at. And so I thought, well, what the hell? Maybe I'll do teach training. And uh, 21 years later, here we are. But Miss Smith asked that question, why did you become a teacher? And so she uh, ran a poll. Uh, and the options were to make a difference, a feeling of suitability, it fitted with my lifestyle or other, please comment. And interestingly, overwhelming majority people clicked to make a difference. I mean, I just wonder how honest people are with themselves, really, because most people I talk to have a sort of story similar to mine. They just kind of fell into it. And those of you that listened to my show two weeks ago <laughs> will know that I shared quite a few clips from the Armstrong and Miller show about um, maybe the reputation that our profession has of people doing teaching because they don't want to do anything else. But that's a whole other story. But lots of people were commenting that, yeah, I, I, I fell into it. I, I just, it just happened. And Daniel replied, and it all got a bit beefy at this point, because it seemed more interesting than working in PR. <laughs> and I think that's it. A lot of people go into teaching because perhaps they don't fancy the, the kind of image that they have rightly or wrongly, of what it might be like to go into the city, do the more uh, traditional professional roles. So Miss Smith asked him, well, why? Why did you think it sounded more interesting? He said, I get paid to spend most of my time talking about literature. My friends get paid to spend most of their time writing nonsense about corporate synergies. I'm clearly winning, which I love. And she says, but you could have been a literary critic or worked in a library. You chose teaching. Why? He said, honestly, the pay is much better. Same reason I didn't go into academia. It helps that I find teenagers to be good company and I'm completely fascinated by the logistical challenges of large secondary schools. She responds, so you have a passion for your subject and enjoy the company of teenagers? pretty vocational reasons. She so wanted him to say it was because it was a vocation. <clears throat> he then quotes from the dictionary definition of passion. And he says, I wouldn't exactly say passion, a word which implies a level of suffering I'm absolutely not willing to undertake for my subject. She responds, the passion of Christ is not what I'm implying. <laughs> but again, it's that I think Daniel is perhaps a different kind of person. He doesn't want to talk about his job as being a passion. I saw um, a tweet shared, uh, shared earlier by uh, Teachers Talk Radio, who are currently at a large history conference. can't remember what it's called, but there's lots of them there. And somebody just in passing in their talk, talked about how much they love their school. Well, great, that's fantastic. And apparently he said, if you cut me, I bleed my school. I mean, I, again, I'm sure it's just hyperbole, but certainly this is not how to persuade me to stay in the profession. And I don't think 
it's how to persuade young people. So I'm going to be sharing a conversation with Rhiannon, a member of my family. I'm just going to give you a sense of what she says in the interview. I do know that the way that I'm going at the moment isn't sustainable. It's a shame because I think teaching suits me in so many ways. You know, I love elements of it and I think my skill set is perfect for some parts of teaching. But I also think to be a teacher, you have to be incredibly resilient. So again, it's that resilience and we explore that in, in our conversation in more depth. I'm deadly serious when I say that we are in real danger of losing Rhiannon. And really it's become symbolic for me. Um, obviously she's somebody I know personally, but I feel that her story reflects that of so many and we need to take it seriously. In my view, if we can't retain people like her, then we have a real problem. But as she makes very clear, we are going to struggle to keep her. I'm at a very interesting point now in my career where I'm thinking a lot about teaching and thinking about, okay, so is it that I'm going through a tough year with a tough class and maybe next year things might be better? Is it that I'm going through a tough time with my school and maybe a different school would be better? Or is it that actually I, I'm in a profession that doesn't suit my personality and actually I need to think about changing professions? It is a really sobering conversation and after the news and hearing from our sponsors I'm going to be sharing the chat that I had with Rhiannon in February half term. So don't go anywhere, listen to the news and our sponsors and I'll be back with you very shortly. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com.
Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. In Scotland, the leader of the country's largest teaching union is to step down from the post in the summer after a decade in the role. Larry Flanagan said it had been an honour to lead the Education Institute of Scotland as its General Secretary. Mr Flanagan has been in the role since 2012, but, according to an article in the TES website, has retained his status as a registered teacher throughout his tenure. Mr Flanagan has not ruled out a return to the classroom. In a statement about his resignation, he said he remained deeply convinced about the strength of our education system and the quality and professionalism of our education workforce. He went on to praise the response of Scotland's teachers and lecturers to challenges of the pandemic. EIS President Heather Hughes described Mr Flanagan as a great servant to Scotland's teaching professionals and a very hard act to follow. The process of recruiting the EIS next General Secretary has already begun. In Wales, Plaid Cymru's leader has announced a pledge that all councils led by the party will aim to offer free school meals to all secondary pupils within five years. Free meals are already being extended to all children in primary education under a cooperation agreement with Labour. Plaid Cymru's leader, Alan Price, will tell the party's spring conference, we will begin to create a Wales free of hunger and poverty. The rollout of the £200 million Universal Free School Meals programme for primary pupils is expected to start in September this year, according to a BBC report. The Independent reports that Ofsted will judge schools' curriculums based on their 2022 SATs and GCSE results. The Department for Education said it will not publish Key Stage 2 SATs in league tables, but it will produce its normal accountability measures to be shared with schools, local authorities and academy trusts to inform school improvement. The DfE added that it will give the data to Ofsted to inform inspections accurately, under the quality of education judgment, for example, on the impact of curriculum designs. Additional guidance suggests inspectors will be aware that the 2021-22 data is not comparable with other years. League tables will be published for the key stage four results at GCSE, and these will also enable Ofsted to make judgments on school curriculum performance. The news comes after a study by YouGov UK revealed that many Year 6 pupils are worried about taking SATs because they were nervous of failure and found exams scary. In South Africa, work is being undertaken to reduce school dropout rates, according to a report in the Daily Maverick. It reports on a panel discussion at the Constitution Hill Human Rights Festival held last weekend. 
which focused on the school dropout rates, already high before the pandemic, of around one in four learners dropping out before graduation. The Zero Dropout campaign wants to change perceptions about the causes, introduce prevention strategies, and reduce the chances of students dropping out by providing safe and stimulating education environments. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, and with zero extra cost, using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. Calls to me. It being frozen meant I had to wait. The downside is making the sandwich. However, throwing 10 slices of bread down, adding filling and then into a Ziploc bag would be quite easy on a Sunday evening. You might need quite a bit of space in your freezer though. Next, I used the trusty thermos mug and noodles. I thought it was a good idea, but unlike a sandwich that you can eat on the go, I needed a fork and then had to consider not dripping it on my tie, so I actually had to stop and eat. So not as simple as a frozen sandwich, but I did have a hot lunch. Now hold on to your hats. I tried this again. I did enjoy a hot lunch, so I smashed the noodles up before I put the water in the second time around. That day, I drank my lunch. No need to find a fork, lid off, quick swig of noodles, genius. The downside I can see is washing the mug. I know I'll find it on the draining board waiting to be washed when I want to get out the door. Finally I tried a snack bar. You can get these quite cheap online and you can find them to match most dietary needs. It was definitely the easiest option but would be the most expensive over time. For me, it didn't feel as lunch-like, if I was being totally honest, but it did the job of rapid calorie input on the go. So, in conclusion, if you're not having lunch, why not try one of these ideas? You will definitely feel better for it. P.S. I googled International Lunch Day, and it actually exists. However, it's on the 10th of March, so we've missed it. Gutted. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you have for your lunch. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. Hello and welcome to the Brunch Show on Saturday with me, Emma Williams. And yes, I'm feeling a little sad today, exploring why it is that we seem to struggle to hold on to our very best and our very brightest in the teaching profession. It's Saturday, we're live. Stay with me for my very frank discussion with the lovely Rhiannon. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you for being with me this morning. And I think that tech briefing was pretty relevant, wasn't it? Overwhelming majority of teachers don't eat lunch. Massive issue. And I'm going to use a word right now, ageist. 
because one of the th reasons that I feel I'm not going to be able to stay in the profession as I age is things like that. So in our school, we now have half an hour for lunch. Now that feels like luxury compared to the 20 minutes that they gave us during the height of the pandemic. And I frankly can't cope with it. It's meant that I have to cut down what I eat during the day dramatically because when you get to a certain age, oh youngsters, listen up, you cannot hurl a full-size meal down your gullet really quickly and then rush off and go and stand and teach actively for a couple of hours. Your guts will do horrible things to you. Uh, you can do that in your 20s, so enjoy it while you can. But trust me, when you get older, it just isn't possible. So I've end up having, ended up having to spread out my eating, which is not how I like to do things. And frankly, I think when we are at the point that in this country, we cannot sit down to have something to eat in a civilised way. Uh, this is not true in other countries, by the way. They will think we're insane. So there is something going on. And I think that is a major part of the problem. So it was interesting to hear his tips. My tip uh, in terms of because people all seem to talk about not having the time to prepare their lunch rather than anything else, which I have to say I find quite puzzling. My tip, just make slightly more than whatever it is you're having for dinner and shove it in a Tupperware pot and take it into work the next day. It's that simple. Don't make a sandwich. It takes too long. So that's my tip. There you go. Back to a couple of tweets before I share my discussion with Rhiannon. Remember, we're talking about retention and therefore we're talking about well-being. Mr H said, can you imagine emailing at 8.30pm on a Sunday to tell staff that governors are coming to classrooms tomorrow for monitoring purposes? Personally, I don't need to imagine it. It just happened. Leaders, don't do that to your staff. What are you doing? Absolutely, 100% unacceptable. And here's another example. Someone called Alastair said, a fellow English teaching colleague has come to the conclusion as the result of a book scrutiny that he needs to mark books after every lesson to satisfy his head of department. This is unsustainable. I already do mark after every lesson and the head of department still criticises marking. Madness. This has got to stop. And there is a an overwhelming body of evidence that tells us that that kind of marking is pointless anyway. So I really don't understand which schools it is are still asking their staff to do that. To do that. It is simply not necessary and not productive for student progress. So if your school is asking you to do it, push back hard and get them to show you the evidence that it promotes student progress because there isn't any. Ask for the evidence. So some really shocking stories and I do wonder whether we really do have to face up to the fact that this is one of the major reasons that we simply can't retain our staff. So without further ado, I'm going to share my chat with Rhiannon, which I had in February half term. She was frankly, and this is important to share, too tired to speak to me at any other time. And I think that 
is something that we need to reflect on. She really felt she couldn't give me the time and that she didn't have the energy to talk about how she felt. So it was a, a really interesting discussion about her journey over the last three, three years. And also she does mention her partner, Joel, who is also a trained teacher. And his experience so far has been so negative that he has never actually taken a full teaching job. And she talks about that at the beginning of the interview. So I'm going to share the interview with you now. Here is the lovely Rhiannon. I've been working at my school for two years now. Joel did his PGC last year, training at the University of Oxford in secondary history. And he had a really, really rough time of it, didn't really enjoy it very much and decided that he didn't want to give up on the idea of teaching altogether, but he wanted to just like take a step back. So he got a job as a TA at my school. And then whilst he was there, they quickly learned that he was, you know, way overqualified to be a TA and they offered him this job as a cover supervisor. Um, so now he does that, which, you know, it's only, you know, like the higher level TA pay scale, but it means that he's basically being a supply teacher, but in just our school really. And obviously there's no accountability for them. There's no pressure mm. to plan anything. And that's why Joel loves it because his work day ends when his work day ends. Obviously yeah. the contrast to my day. <laughs> yeah. So what did he particularly not like about the secondary setting? I think he really struggled with the focus on results and exams and how it just felt like everything was working towards the, the final result and felt that he was teaching a lot of history exam skills rather than teaching children about history. To us, he prefers the age group of secondary. He, he much prefers working with the older kids, but yeah, he, he feels that it's less pastoral and more about the work rather than he, he cares a lot about like the well-being side of things um, and getting to see the same children every, every day and getting to know them rather than the kind of like speed dating that he, he felt that secondary was <laughs> interesting yeah well, I've always thought what I would find really tough about the primary setting is I mean in, in secondary it's like you, you wake up you think oh god I've got nine whoever but it's only that hour whereas if you get a tough class in primary it's all day every day you literally just hit the nail on the head exactly <laughs> exactly that we were talking to my friend Mia and she is languages secondary teacher and she said the exact same thing um, and at the moment I have got a particularly challenging class and it is just relentless it's every day isn't it you go in you you try lots of different things and you're like no I'm not going to let it get me down today I'm going to try this I'm going to pull all these fancy behavior management strategies out my you know and uh, <laughs> and and it, and uh, then things sometimes things work and sometimes things don't but you still have to like you said all day every day what year group have you got? So I've got year fours at the moment, but I, I quite like lower key stage two. My journey, if you like, from starting out doing my PGCE, I was in a year two placement, which was challenging. I think key stage one is like a whole different ball game altogether. It's, you know, it's how to hold a pencil, how to sit on your bottom and that stuff. Yeah. Um, which I found a bit much. And then well, my PGC was disrupted halfway through because of 
the pandemic. So I, I had a normal PGC from September until March. And then a day, the day before I was about to go into my second placement, Boris closed all the schools. So I never got to go. Yeah. And then from March until July, I had the weirdest few months of just sitting at home, essentially having to collate a document to hand in that proved that what I'd done on my PGC was enough to qualify me. And, and then the whole time I was making it, I was thinking, oh, well, I don't know if I have done enough to, I don't know if I am qualified to, to be a teacher. But obviously at that point you, you want to pass, don't you? And you, even yeah. if you don't feel like you have got that much well, experience. And also the whole cohort was in the same position. So I guess they had to decide, well, either we don't have any new teachers this year or exactly. we just go, okay, guys, get on with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that those were their choices. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think a few people didn't pass. Like I think maybe like uh, some people just chose not to become a teacher. I, I'm not yeah. ready. So they just dropped out and then other people didn't pass because they, they had, had had a really tough time with it in their first placement and didn't get enough evidence to say that they could. Mm. Um, but most of us were qualified. And then I then had the, the pleasure of, of job hunting during a lockdown and just stumbled across my, across my school. Um, and then I was placed in year three, which I'm told is a lovely year group to start with in your first year as a primary teacher, because it's a slap bang in the middle of the ages. Uh -huh. yeah. So it's not toilet training, but it's also not SATs. <laughs> <laughs> then, then my NQT year was um, return of children back to full time after all that time of what they'd missed. So the year group that I had in year three would have missed most of their year two coming into year three with me. They then had another lockdown from January until yeah. uh, whenever it was. Yeah, March, two months, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to be honest, they were a lovely class, though. They were really, my school were very good to me and they gave me a, a very settled class for my NQT year. Um, and they were just, they were lovely, really, really lovely bunch. So I, I can't complain about my my NQT year, to be honest. Um, mm. But then, even, um, so even though you've got year four, it's not the same class? No, it? no. So so exactly that. So um, I did want to stay in year three, actually. I wanted to consolidate the year that I'd done. Um, unfortunately, due to various different compatibility things with my parallel teacher and things like that and they decided to move me to year four but take up the parallel class um so my class went to my now parallel teacher and I took the the class next door uh, who were a, a much more challenging class being in a different year group now having to plan different uh you know do different planning whereas most people get to consolidate their NQT year and, and get yeah. to their planning again. So, so that was a real, a real shame. I, you know, I really didn't want to move from year three, but I'm I, trying to see it, trying to see it as a positive, obviously. And, and a year four is still a lovely year group, but yes, I'm very much looking forward to a year where I can just have some, you know, no change. It was tough in that they could have left you at least with the class you were familiar with we've given three choices and my first choice was to stay in year three second choice was to move to year four with my class and so at least I had those relationships formed and mm. it would have been having to learn new planning but at least I knew who I was planning for yes and then my third choice was essentially anything else in 
maybe year two, year four, maybe year five with, with a parallel teacher who I could form a really good relationship with and, and learn a lot from. I was quite keen on that. I wanted a, a really good relationship with my next parallel teacher. Um, and so they gave me the, uh, well, I suppose it was my third choice really, because it was moving year groups and it was getting a new class as well. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, so, so that was a whole, thing dealing with that at the time but as you always do over the six week holiday you kind of have a chance to step back and think oh I'm ready for a new challenge it'll all be okay <laughs> yeah. and then it all hits you in September yeah. I'm at a very interesting point now in my career where I'm 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 thinking a lot about about teaching and and, and thinking about okay so is it that I'm going through a tough year with a tough class and maybe next year things might be better? Is it that I'm going through a tough time with my school and maybe a different school would be better? Or is it that actually I, I'm in a profession that doesn't suit my personality um, and actually I need to think about changing professions? You know, I've got all these thoughts in my head about, about what to do next. And I do know that the way that I'm going at the moment isn't sustainable. You know, the, the kind of the way that I'm working at the moment is taking everything out of me. And, and it means that I haven't got much left for, you know, making time for the important things like seeing, you know, family members. And whenever I see my family, they always say, oh, God, you look tired, you know, and <laughs> you, you don't look well. And they're all, you know, they're always worrying about me working too hard. And so, yeah, I'm definitely considering it's a shame because I think teaching suits me in so many ways. You know, I love elements of it. And I think my skill set is, is perfect for some parts of teaching. But I also think to be a teacher, you have to be incredibly resilient and you have to let things just bounce off of you, which is something that I'm yet to learn how to do. <laughs> mm. Do you mean things that relate to student behaviour or do you mean the workload or yeah, parents? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think behaviour, I think dealing with parents, I think dealing with other teachers, all of those things. Um, the sheer number of interactions you have in your day mm. as a teacher and the sheer number of lives that you impact just from either showing up or not showing up is something that I find incredibly overwhelming. I'd love to say that I, I have all the resources and all of and the, you know, and everything to be able to do my job properly. But I feel like a lot of the time I, I don't, I don't feel like I can do those kids. I can't, I can't give, give them what they need. And I, and I take that as like a personal failure when I show up mm. to work and I can't do my job because of, you know, whatever is gone wrong in the day. And a lot of people tell me that that's something that you just build as you, as you you know put your years in as a teacher you just you get a thick skin but yeah it's it's hard to know whether it's right for me at the moment do you think you're someone who self-questions a lot or is that, yeah. is that what's going on yeah so so my partner always tells me oh come on you've got to back yourself more yep come on like you you're doing a good job and you just got to back yourself so I do think there is an element of that kind of yeah questioning my own judgment yeah and and just that kind of that very t bad cycle you can get into where you think about scenarios in your day and then you you overthink them and you know think about oh well I should have should have could have done this that sort mm. of thing so yeah but it, it's such a shame because I feel like I've been spending the last three years I suppose 
climbing a ladder and and developing this skill set for teaching which so many of it so many parts of it I love I love making resources I love designing the learning like that creative side of the job is something that I love and I can't imagine giving up mm. I'm similar to you I find the curriculum planning one of the most interesting aspects of the job for me it's actually the uh the more hands-on social side of it that I think I find hard I would say everyone wants a piece of you that's how it feels when you're mm -hmm. feeling tired in teaching that mm -hmm. the second you set foot in the door someone's asking a question or, and that's I say it, colleagues as well as children yeah um, exactly. you know, when I set foot in there's not a child in sight they're not allowed in yet um, and yet <laughs> yeah. the second you step in the door you know someone's going to ask you something exactly yeah me and my yeah. partner we 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 steal a i think it's a lord of the rings quote but it's uh it's the expression that you feel like a, a small piece of butter being spread over too many pieces of toast <laughs> and that not a single piece of that toast ever gets buttered well it's just <laughs> every bit of it dry and you know you'd like to be able to just butter a piece of bread and do a good job <laughs> So when you so you say you, you like the planning, so that must mean your planning is good if that's something that you give time to. What is it that then makes your makes your day not go as well as you always wish it had gone? Yeah, yeah. So 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 like yeah, I would actually even though people say I don't back myself, I would say that I, I could with confidence say that my planning is good mm. <laughs> um, because I enjoy it and I put a lot of time into it. But I would say I would say, yeah, managing behaviour is probably the part of the job that 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 I find the most straining and the bit of the day that feels like it goes wrong. Like you can plan the most perfect lesson with every child in mind and and think that you've absolutely nailed it. And then a child will throw you a curveball and say, no, actually, I don't feel like doing this today. I'm not in the mood because of my home life or whatever they've got going on. And I think the fact that as a teacher you're navigating 30 different social emotional backgrounds and try everyone's coming to the room that day with a different perspective and a different outlook and you're trying to align all of those outlooks to be focused for learning and I just don't think that sometimes that's possible I think sometimes children are going through something and what they need in that moment is to be nurtured and to be calmed down. And we don't have the adults to be able to necessarily give them that. Um, so the, yeah, the nature of the class at the moment is, is, is a high need class, a lot of sort of social emotional need. And so quite often I'm having to sort of stop a lesson maybe halfway through and do like five minutes of deep breathing and mindfulness exercises. Um, because I'll be able to read the room and see that that the class are not ready for learning. Do you mm. have a TA in the room? Uh, yes, yeah, so I have I have one TA, um, but they are assigned to a child with uh, an EHCP. I feel I have to make a choice between letting my, the child with the EHCP get the support that they need, and then the rest of the class then has nothing apart from obviously me playing a game of whack-a-mole where I'm like ah. <laughs> um, um or I then sometimes say you know give my TA a group of say six children and then give the 
EHCP child something to do independently that's obviously like much much lower level and then feel that they're not really getting the support that they need Mm. um so it just feels like I said earlier I just feel like I'm not I'm not giving the I feel like I'm not meeting the needs of the children I'm obviously doing my best to to give them what I can but with the current situation one TA in my class just isn't it's not enough and I think a huge part of that is because the pandemic has created a class with where their experiences over the past few years have been so drastically different that you've got a little group of children who are exactly where they need to be if not you know they're working at a year five curriculum you've got a large chunk of the class who are working a bit below so probably working a bit more like a year three curriculum just where they've missed patches and then you've got another huge chunk of children who are working drastically below you know more like year two year one curriculum where their their experience of lockdown were virtually no learning at all Mm. pandemic has just polarized and it's just made a class that's very very tricky to to differentiate for Mm. but it Mm. would have widened the gaps in in their learning won't it so you say if they there'll be certain students that had all the support they needed at home and probably it accelerated their learning exactly and <laughs> others that will have learned nothing and will have therefore gone backwards because they'll have forgotten everything they were taught that they learn even in year one yeah yeah exactly that um so yeah it's just made an impossible situation in terms of differentiation and um you can still plan a lesson where everyone's planned it so that everyone's doing something you know they can access but that unfortunately especially when you might have a class who then then their natural instinct isn't to just get on with it even if they can do it it's still a lot of managing those individual tasks whereas you know previously like my class from last year for example they were all working roughly at a similar level Mm. so I differentiated more by outcome with them and Mm. it was more just that you you know there'd be a couple of bits of support and scaffolding in in place for the ones that needed it but generally everyone was doing the same thing and it's much easier to oversee isn't it because you're just you can do a bit more floating around the room and um so yes I'm very much looking forward to if I decide to stay next year I've heard the next year threes coming up are exactly that and they are all working roughly at the same level um and so planning and differentiating for them is hopefully going to be easier Mm. well have you spoken to leadership about this and said they need to give you an easier gig next year or they will lose you yes yes exactly so you know I've uh, uh, the the other thing to mention is that leadership has changed drastically in the past few years which is another reason why I, I've had a bit of a tough time with it is after my NQT year the head teacher left and then after after two terms um the head the deputy head that then left uh, and then we had a huge restructuring where the head of lower school then became the acting deputy and we've recruited a new deputy head now that's starting in after Easter. Um, but because of all those huge changes in leadership, communication hasn't been as good as it could have been. So, you know, things when I explained that I wasn't coping too well, it's almost like when schools are dealing with that much change, one person's struggle with one class is quite a small problem compared to all the other drastic changes that's going on in the school, unfortunately. Mm. So that that's a, a huge part of, of why a lot of my struggles haven't necessarily been been dealt with. But um, very recently, 
uh, I did have a very serious chat uh, and said, you know, that things were not good and that something drastic needed to change. Otherwise, I, uh, the school and the, the profession would be lo- would be losing a teacher, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have since been offered to go down to four days a week, um, which I'm highly, highly considering. Um, and I need to do a bit more research into how much your wages change when you go down to four days a week. I've also heard the other end of it, which is, oh, don't go down to four days a week because you're paid for four days, but you work five and people find that you end up just doing, you know, that day off, you end up just working the entire day with the planning. A lot of people do say that, but I think it depends why you're going down to four days a week and what you expect of that. Mm. So for me, when I reduced my hours, which I have done, it was about sanity and like like it is for you basically exactly yeah and so it's not that I expect to get everything done in four days and then have a three-day weekend and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily going to work like that but I was like no I'd rather reduce my teaching hours which means less planning less marking and I, and I don't mind it of course yes some of that will fill to expand my my day off yes but yeah. it means I'm I'll get that done in the five days it doesn't reduce your workload down to four days, but mm. it might reduce it down to four and a half or five. Yeah. Meaning you actually get a weekend, which a lot yeah. of teachers don't get. Yeah. It could be a game changer. It could be an absolute mm. game changer. Um, and I felt very, very appreciative that my school had taken my concerns seriously and had come back to me with with a, an option that I know isn't ideal for them. So, you know, for them, it's better if they have full-time teachers. So I felt supported in that they were prepared to do something for me that maybe it wasn't their first option. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so that was a very positive outcome from, mm. from being at breaking point and, 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 and expressing that. Um, and I think sometimes people don't hear you until you are at breaking point. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're very good at putting on a brave face like I am and um, telling telling people that you're not coping but maybe looking as if you've got your you know your shiz together and uh, mm-hmm. and, and doing a good job at saying all the right things and uh, doing the elegant swan kind yeah. of analogy <laughs> and it's very important to go and do some blubbing to the de- deputy head I've done it a few times <laughs> in my career like most of the time totally on it and then occasionally just go and that's when they know okay Emma's really not happy now yeah (laughs) there is a problem here we need to do something exactly (laughs) yeah yeah so so hopefully going back next term every time I have a half term I always go back with refreshed and thinking again like I said before that I'm up for the challenge again Mm. and I just need to find a way that I don't lose sight of that when you're in the middle of term and you know all the things that happen it doesn't sound like you felt like this when you had a different class so it does sound like this is a year you've got to get through and maybe not make a a drastic decision until this year is done I know that's tough but yeah yeah exactly and also like we are like over halfway now aren't we really Mm. and the the rest is the easy the supposedly the easy bit of the year it it, it so is and I mean the Mm. weather makes such a difference The, the days are lighter I find that makes a a huge difference to how I feel yeah just being able to do things in the evening again exactly you don't feel so exhausted because your circadian rhythms aren't telling you well it's been nighttime for hours what are you doing yeah Uh, so that really helps 
prior to this job, I was cabin crew at BA, which was a ridiculous choice. Uh, and in <laughs> hindsight, I have no idea why I thought I could do that because I lasted a year. Um, and then like you were talking about circadian rhythm, like yeah, mine just, was just yeah. all over the place and I did not cope with that. I remember when we, we talked about it before, though, I was saying what nobody realises about that kind of those violent shifts is that it messes. It just, everyone just thinks about sleep. It's like that's, in, if anything, the smallest thing. It messes with your whole digestive system. It just It's horrendous yeah, doing that yeah. kind of job. Oh, yeah. I don't know, honestly, how some people do, how, you know, people do it their whole lives. And Well, it shortens your lifespan. There's quite a lot of research that shows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, I think they told us that it's something to do with you know your organs, like you know be, being under stress and things like that. Absolutely. So I'm very glad that I threw threw the towel in with the with the cabin crew stuff. Um, so it's not as bad as that. <laughs> no, no. Except the difference with that was that you would occasionally get a day to sunbathe. You know, you would yeah, get, get 48 true. hours in a nice hot country to sunbathe. So it kind of balanced out. <laughs> this is very true yeah all I can say from my own experience is it does get a lot better mm. it does get easier you, you will get the opportunity to repeat I mean you will yeah it, you know I, you I haven't so. benefited from that yet but you will I think you've mm -hmm. been unlucky there mm. um, you will benefit from repetition and you can use a lot of what you've done before and, and then just tweak it make it better and that always feels wonderful yeah you remember the misconceptions that the kids exactly have so you can anticipate those so, so that mm. all gets easier yeah. And I, I don't know about, I think it's the wrong thing to say you want to develop a thicker skin, but I think, mm. I think it might be just an age thing as well, that things get to you less as you get mm. older, I think. Yeah, yeah. When I was your age, I would fret constantly about whether I'd upset someone or if I'd said, because teaching, mm. like you say, you're constantly interacting. And I would, I think, oh God, why did I say that? And, or are they, are they upset with me? Now I just think, don't get over it <laughs> I just, yeah, like, yeah. literally yeah or, I, or you think well maybe I did upset them but actually well maybe well, there was no avoiding that maybe that was yeah. what they needed in that moment exactly you yeah. do you just get to the point where you think oh well you know yeah it needed saying or it well if they misinterpreted it I can't control that I if I if I really said something that I think I'll go and apologize and we can move on I think yeah, yeah. yeah I just mm -hmm. I used to absolutely torture myself with things mm. that I might have said or done that I'm, I, I got a bit wrong whereas I think when you're a bit older you just think oh well you know oh, well. I, I got that wrong absolutely okay yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly it and I see the more experienced teachers around school and they say the same that's what they say to me every time they're like oh you remind me so much of myself when I first started teaching and yeah. you're literally the you know younger version of me and <laughs> And they just say, just stop caring so much. Just stop caring. Like you, you're doing a good job, and you know that's you just have to remember that. You have to remember you're doing your best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and it's been so tough because of the pandemic and because of the particular class that you had. Sounds like it was a very broad spread of social background. Yeah, and educational background. background those gaps will have been widened exponentially yeah and, and yeah. you're getting the fallout of that now and it's really tough it's impossible it's impossible it is That's yeah it. that and is I the truth it's impossible yeah. and becoming okay with like the fact that you are doing an impossible job but but um it's very tricky to know where to draw the line between well actually if 
where do you get your job satisfaction if if you're going into your day knowing that oh okay so it's impossible to meet the needs of all of these children but how can I best meet the needs of, of these children and still feel satisfied by the job that I've done for a perfectionist brain like mine and maybe maybe I'm a bit pessimistic as well maybe I'm more likely to focus on the negatives and that's a hard hard job to do but something that I'm going to have to learn to do because mm. I think it's the only way to survive in this industry. Possibly. I think there is that to some degree. I think you just have to remember it is, it is in a sense, an impossible task to cater individually for every single child. That is impossible. Yes. So all you can do is, is pitch to the majority. But from what you're saying, if they're all on, frankly, a different curriculum, that's, yeah. that's close to impossible. And, and you end up having to make a decision of leaving leaving the top end to work independently as much of the time as you can yeah while you baby the rest and that is not ideal and is not rewarding because you want to be challenging the more advanced students but Mm. again realistically yeah it's it's the alternative which is to leave the bottom to to just yeah you know make no progress at all which to me would just be awful Um, I think if you care about social mobility on any level the decision's clear those who've thrived during the pandemic they've got pretty much what they need exactly anyway they must have been supported at home Mm -hmm. and they will continue to be supported at home they're going to be frankly (laughs) they're going yeah they're going to be okay so I think that's right your time has to go to those ones that aren't going to be okay unless you unless they are, are nurtured and yeah I think the the, is the 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 poor behavior and and how and how draining that that I find that um you know mixed with uh an increasing amount of SEN in schools as well we're finding that the you know the average number of of children with the SEN is increasing per class and that obviously comes with a great deal of differentiated learning but also paperwork <laughs> a lot of pupil profiles and that sort of thing which um is putting that workload you know it's building that workload mm. um, do you I mean in your secondary setting do they have a separate um SEN unit or are the children with SEN integrated into mainstream oh they're all they're all more or less integrated we do have a SEN department but that mm. is where uh well various things happen some students go for particular support mm. and we have an army of TAs but like, just like with you, they are very much assigned to a particular child. Mm. Uh, and, and we really don't have that phenomenon of them supporting us. I mean, the, the, I think the term teaching assistant is almost a misnomer because they are there mm. to support a particular child. Sure, um, yeah. I mean, occasionally so they're always keen to help. They'll like, could I hand out the worksheets? Like, well, that's not going to help me massively, to be totally honest. Um, if you want to sort of take those three boys out and nail them to the wall, that would help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so we have we have that. And then, so obviously in a secondary school, there might be setting goes on, depending on the oh, subject. Yes, so, so, so that differentiation isn't quite... Some subjects do it, some subjects don't, and that partly depends on the philosophy of the head of department whether they believe in setting or not sometimes. yeah 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 I'm, I'm a bit divided on that one really I don't it's I a don't tricky know. one so we've more moved to sort of banding okay so rather yeah. than set one two three foot which we always which we had previously mm. it's very much those that are going to be working towards a pass or above 
Okay. And those that uh, need more remedial support to try and get them to that bar. Okay. And, when, and when you're when you're as as uh, Joel disliked so much, when ultimately your goal is to get them that GCSE. Yeah. There certainly comes a point, I think, at key stage four where I think that's the right approach. I think mm-hmm. it's a good balance between not yeah. not oversetting and saying, right, you're the top, you're the high flyers, you're the, Absolutely. you know, but it's yeah. actually saying, okay, let's be realistic. Who do we know is going to pass mm. and we should be pushing upwards? Yeah. And who do we, who are we really worried that they won't get a four? Yeah. Yeah. No, and that, that is life changing. You know, if they're not going to get a four mm. in their, their English and maths. That's yeah. the difference between a life on minimum wage and a life not. Absolutely. To put yeah. it very bluntly. Yeah. Again, perhaps not ideal, but mm-hmm. I think that's perhaps the best we can do. Yeah, yeah. And and I think, um, you know, we, me and my parallel teacher have had, had conversations before about because of this, this huge problem with differentiation in, in this particular year group, um, with the fact that the class next door who I had last year are relatively working at pretty much where they need to be. Um, apart from a small group of children who who maybe aren't we thought about maybe setting our two classes um, for like for maths and English perhaps Mm -hmm. but the problem with that would be that there wouldn't be it wouldn't be very equal it's it's worth considering and maybe writing down the names and seeing if we could if we could make it balance and maybe even having a TA in a breakout room with some of the with another third group and maybe having it in three different but it's it's much more frowned upon in primary setting. I think it's mm. you don't hear about it as much. From my experience, anyway, I don't know if you. Yeah, hear, but... I think it's important to not to not to see it as setting because of ability. I think it's saying mm-hmm. for whatever reason, and let's face it, for that particular class, mm. it's pandemic related, and will mm. therefore be to do with their social background and the position that their family was in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are at different stages in terms of their knowledge mm-hmm. and their skills. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the way to to kind of resell it. Is, and justify is, it. We're mm-hmm. not we're not saying these children are weaker. We're no. saying they are further behind, mm-hmm. and we want to put them in this group to accelerate their their learning. And that's the way to see it. That's a very good way of describing it, Emma. Yeah, it's uh... it's all about the rhetoric yeah exactly the thing about education is everybody wants the same thing mm. everybody wants to lift children out of poverty yeah everybody wants every, every child to do well but people have different views on how you do that yeah exactly. um, yeah and that's, and I'm still, that's I'm still the problem. figuring out my views yeah I I, I feel like I, I can listen to someone uh, explain something in one way and be like oh yeah oh yeah I completely agree with you and then I'll hear someone explain the complete opposite and be like wow yeah you may you also make a very good point <laughs> it's mm. really helpful to remember we do all want the same thing yeah we just perhaps disagree or or are as yet undecided on how to achieve that yeah so but I think for example you know if you look at what you've got with those two groups it's not working you've mm. got a group that's struggling and a group that's doing fine well actually that then there really is a very strong argument for doing mm. some shuffling around yeah or because it's doing, not working yeah doing something drastic um it doesn't mm. make people happy necessarily it, it normally causes a causes a, a fluster amongst parents and teachers and mm. everyone but actually when like you said when you're the one dealing with it and it's not working the only solution is to do something drastic that might upset some people but as long as you know you're doing it for the good of for good of the children mm. um then then that has to be your your reason for doing it doesn't it um, absolutely if you've got that at the back of your mind all the time this is why i am doing this mm-hmm. 
then everything else ceases to matter so much yeah you know yeah. parents can moan and scream but you're like I know this is the right thing to do yeah yeah exactly so yeah. sorry yeah. you don't like it I'm still doing it yeah I'm still doing exactly yeah yeah and it does come to a point where I think with the parents sort of you know you do, it does have to get to a point where actually if the parents are really really unhappy about something and it's just one parent you have to think well maybe that then this school maybe isn't right right for you if you're not agreeing with the way that our school is doing it um rather than creating this weird culture where the school is constantly bending to to please parents which i think is really silly when school you know we are the institution that knows about education yeah, and we're the experts exactly uh, but yes the, what you said earlier about um knowing that everyone ultimately wants the same thing for for the children i went through a phase of sort of blaming everyone else for why things were going wrong and i think it was just like an immediate like oh gosh this isn't working it's their fault it's their fault you know like just mm. to make myself feel bit feel better and if you just see the world as if everyone is doing the best in the situation that they get that they're in and that you know no one is to blame because you know we're all just doing our best then it is a very helpful mindset to have and yeah, yeah blaming people doesn't it doesn't it doesn't help no um, it might help short term in that moment of anger but in the long term it doesn't help no it is it everyone is doing the best with the tools they've given and those tools mm -hmm. may have been very inadequate yeah i mean we could certainly managers shoulders are very broad with uh, all the uh, screaming and shouting and whinging that all of us do about them but uh, again they're doing mm. their best and i don't feel the weight of responsibility that they carry absolutely yeah yeah no definitely all careers have their their wobbly moments but i think when you're not a teacher and you hear a lot of people moaning about it it probably feels like oh flipping it oh the teacher's always moaning about it and they get all those long holidays like what are they moaning about but <laughs> Actually, my method of dealing with that now i just i just literally go yeah it's absolutely fantastic <laughs> and that and then they, they they don't know what to say they're completely flawed yeah. and then if they do say anything more like oh, they'll go well there is currently a real recruitment and retention crisis in teaching mm. and you get paid to train so if you'd like to sign up yeah immediately shut up it's yeah great. yeah maybe i'll try that emma maybe i'll try that because it totally like, works because it's like oh god if it's so great why why isn't everyone doing it <laughs> yeah yeah because i said instead i go on the defensive and i'm all i'm all about the oh well i work through the holidays anyway because i'm doing bits and bobs and no just just go no it's great it really really shuts them up that's my right i'm, I'm doing that now <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh well, lovely, lovely to see you Emma. yeah and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend and yeah, you uh, and I'll, I'll i'll keep in touch yeah <laughs> please do please do so that was the absolutely delightful rhiannon and you probably noticed i did try really hard to reassure her and persuade her to stay because i think it would be a tragic loss to the profession for us to lose her but I also think it'll be a loss for her because she clearly does love the job and I don't mean in a vocational way I mean that her skill set and her interests match the job very well and I hope that she finds her way forward uh, in the profession. One of the things that Rhiannon talked about that I've been thinking about a lot is how and I and I listening back to it I maybe 
used the wrong word when I described the job as impossible. I didn't really mean to say the job was impossible. And certainly she's absolutely right that how do you make peace with the fact that you're trying to do an impossible task and still find job satisfaction? And I've been thinking about this a lot. And of course, she's absolutely right. If you're trying to do a job that is frankly impossible, no wonder people end up leaving. I think what I meant was it is impossible to cater individually for the needs of every child. That's what a private tutor does. They cater for the individual needs of one particular child. And I think one of the problems we've had in teaching is that this is this myth that in the classroom setting, you can and therefore should and must cater for every single child. That is a nonsense. And that's the reality. We do our best, um, but we are teaching 30 students at once. And we have to find realistic and practical ways to make that experience as positive and as productive for as many of them as possible. That does not mean individual differentiation and catering for every single quirk of every single child. It, that's not possible. And I think the quicker we leave behind that curse of extreme differentiation, uh, the quicker we'll find our way forward in the profession. So certainly that really has made me think a great deal about how just how important that is. So to close the show, I want to reflect on, on the conversation and think about some of the things that we could all do better that I think would help people like Rhiannon and help, frankly help all of us maintain our sanity and therefore maintain our our position in the profession. Firstly, I do think it's important to remember that we do all want the same thing. And I do remind myself of that when I'm in the midst of getting drawn in. I rarely comment, sometimes but rarely, but at least um, irritated by uh, an argument on Twitter um, or an argument with colleagues at school about how to approach things. And we certainly have our frustrations in our school. Quite often, the frustrations stem from people who work solely pastorally with children and those of us who are teaching them. There's considerable crossover, but there is a tension there. But remembering that we all want the same thing can really help. We do all want the same thing, and therefore it's the language that we use with each other when we are talking about our frustrations with a particular child, a particular class, or a particular system in the school. If we keep in the forefront of our minds that we all want the same thing, we want children to be safe, happy, and productive in school. But we've got to remember they are in school to learn. And I fear that people who are passionate about the pastoral side of things sometimes lose touch with that. And those of them that aren't teachers don't really understand that what we're doing every single minute of every single day is trying to share knowledge. And if that child is not in our class or, as they put it, not in the right mind frame or whatever, well, they're going to miss out. And that's a problem and we need to deal with it. An illustration of the kind of discussion I mean was sparked by Adam Boxer on Twitter this week, where he shared the following tweet. Isn't it so weird 
that there's a massive positive correlation between students who are generally badly behaved and students who always need the toilet in lessons. So weird. Well, as you can predict, lots of people went absolutely bonkers, uh, suggesting that he was some kind of psychopath uh, who didn't understand that sometimes children do urgently need the toilet, uh, slash didn't understand how some people might have a medical condition that makes them need the toilet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. on and on and on. Now, part of the problem is the difference between secondary and primary. And this is what I mean. A lot of the time we all talk over each other and we talk at cross purposes. Now, if you're a primary teacher, especially with the very little ones, you are going to have a very different handle on toilet visits compared to a secondary teacher. Now, that's partly due to age, but it's also partly due to the way the day is set up. So if you're a primary school teacher, those children are with you all the time. So you don't need to go through any processes to monitor their toilet visits. But primary teachers listen up in a secondary school. That in itself is a whole layer of stress. So in our school, we are supposed to log, and I do because I'm very into systems and I'm a big fan of them, log every single time you allow a child to leave your classroom to go to the toilet. So in theory, that means we've got a really clear record of how many toilet visits this child uh, has asked for during the day. And then that can be dealt with. I mean, frankly, if a child is going to the toilet eight times a day, either they have a severe medical condition that needs dealing with, or they are taking the proverbial. Um, and it's usually the latter, because generally speaking, by the time a child gets to secondary school, we know about medical conditions as a rule. Obviously there are exceptions and those can be dealt with. Again, the flagging system is really important. The other thing that I think primary school teachers don't really understand about secondary is exactly what they get up to. They communicate with each other through their phones, which in our school they're not supposed to have, uh, but they do, let's be, let's be frank. Uh, they, they plot to meet at certain times they coordinate it, they will go and vape in the toilets. They will do, you would not believe what they get up to. And it is a safeguarding issue. In a secondary school, huge setting, you cannot just let them be wandering off. It's not okay. They get up to stuff that is not acceptable or they're putting themselves at risk. Some of them may be self-harmers that we cannot let go off on their own. There are a huge number of issues. And that's before I even discussed the learning that they're missing. Every time you let that child walk out of your class, the message is, oh, well, it's only a lesson. Who cares anyway? So again, we all want the same thing. We all want children to be safe, happy and productive in school. And we need to stop shouting at each other and start listening to each other about the different ways that that needs to be managed. And that includes in different settings. So that's my first thought for the fortnight. Here's my second one. We need to stop fetishizing burnout. Teaching is a job. It's not a personal sacrifice. So if you ever do that, if you're someone who believes that teaching is a vocation, 
and you love all these memes about burning the candle down to light the way for others, please keep it to yourself. If you find it inspiring, bully for you. But it's not sending out a good message. And I don't think that anyone at any level in the profession should be seeing that as an ideal. It is not something that we should be asking anybody to do. Third thought, ask yourself what is critical rather than what appears to be urgent. Teaching's a job where everything seems to be urgent. Everybody wants this by tomorrow. And sometimes it can be really difficult to see the wood for the trees. Managers, wise up. Teachers, push back. Ask yourself and your managers, is this critical? And by that I mean, is it a safeguarding issue? Obviously. Also, is it critical for learning? If it's not, put it to the bottom of your to-do list and justify that. I think it's really important. Fourth thought, remember that changes at SLT level mean that staff welfare can get overlooked. And I think that's one of the most worrying things about what's happened to Rhiannon. Um, it's because of all the changes that have been happening in, her, uh, happening in her school that she has not perhaps been supported to the degree, degree that she should have been. I think they made a really poor decision about the position that they put her in. I think to get a, a young person who is that early on in their career to not only shift year groups after just one year, just their NQT year, and shift classes when that wasn't necessary, I think that was a big mistake. And I really struggle to understand why they did that. So if you're in SLT, you need to really be thinking about retaining your staff and you need to be particularly alert to that if there have been changes at the top. Finally, and it relates to that, and it is a message to anyone who manages people, look out for each other and look out for your staff, especially those elegant swans like Rhiannon, because people who seem to be coping superbly with the job may not be coping in reality. They may be struggling. And sometimes those who are doing the most fantastic of jobs are doing that, that awful candle beam. They are burning themselves down. So I think it's hugely important to constantly check in with each other and constantly make sure that your staff are not overloading themselves. A really good piece of advice that I read a while back that we can all do for each other is instead of making a comment like, don't stay too late or don't work too hard, which is frankly unhelpful and can sound a little bit smug, especially if you're the one just off out the door. Ask your colleague, what have you got left to do? Just check in with them. Why are they still there? What have they got left to do? And maybe just open up that conversation about whether what they're doing is critical or just something that they really could be leaving to another time or frankly doesn't need doing at all or maybe has already been done by somebody else. So hugely important to look out for each other. I hope very much that I've persuaded Rhiannon to stay with us because I feel we are learning from each other. The profession is growing 
it is improving and our evidence base is so huge now that more and more teachers are developing the confidence to push back. Remember the mantra, show me the evidence. And if there isn't evidence that this is worth my time, I'm not doing it. So those are my thoughts for the fortnight. Thank you very much for joining me on Teachers Talk Radio, and I hope that you do so again next fortnight. Until then, have a lovely weekend and take care. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.